The Protestant Reformation, then and now, takes you on an exciting spiritual journey that explores church history in the 1500s, Bible prophecy in these last days, and the mighty issues facing each one of us today as we await the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Enjoy these eye-opening presentations with Pastor Steve Wolberg of Whitehorse Media. Welcome back to part seven of a 10-part series about the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and what needs to be reformed today. This program is called Roman Catholicism and the Immortal Soul. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, in the name of Jesus, we pray like we've prayed during past programs. We pray again that the Holy Spirit will take charge of these broadcasts and that you will use them and use your word to enlighten many hearts and minds. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, a few years ago, I learned about a book called 23 Minutes in Hell, written by a Protestant Christian named Bill Weiss. The book was published in 2006. The shocking book recounts what the author claims were his horrifying experiences in hell on the night of November 23, 1998. In his book, Weiss says that at the time that he was supernaturally transported to hell, he was a real estate broker. On the night of November 23, 1998, he was unexpectedly taken off in a vision into what seemed like a dark prison cell. Then two foul-smelling beasts that seemed like the personification of evil and terror spoke to him in a blasphemous language. Weiss says that those creatures had strength approximately 1,000 times greater than the strength of a normal human. In his vision, he then heard the screams of billions of damned people who were suffering in the flames of hell. Then he says he encountered Jesus, who told him to tell other people that hell is definitely a very real place. Weiss later woke up and found himself lying on the floor of his living room at home, screaming in horror. Wow, what a story. Is it true? Did such an experience really happen to Bill Weiss? Did God really give him a vision of the flames of hell? Or possibly was it just his imagination? Or could it possibly have come from a tricky devil trying to deceive humans about the afterlife? In this program and in the next one, I'm going to talk about heaven, hell, the soul, death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, it's impossible to deal with every shade of this issue or to answer every question that you may have as we go along, but I'm going to share some very fundamental basic principles and solid Bible truths that are very, very enlightening. But first, here's a quiz question. What do the following teachings all have in common? Teaching number one, the idea that when a lost person dies, their soul immediately descends into the tormenting fires of hell. This is what Protestants and Catholics often teach today. Teaching two, the idea that when a saved person dies, their souls soar immediately to heaven to enter the presence of Jesus. This is also what most Protestants and Catholics teach today. Teaching three, the idea that when a person who isn't quite ready for heaven or not quite bad enough to go to hell, 
dies, their soul instead goes to a middle place, sort of a, a holding tank called purgatory to be purged from sin. This is what the Roman Catholic Church taught in the time of Martin Luther in the 1500s, and it still teaches this today. Teaching number four, the idea that when a person dies, their soul enters the spirit world to become a ghost on the other side. Sometimes such ghosts can re-enter our world and communicate with the living. According to what many religions, occultists, and spiritualists teach, that's their view. Teaching number five, the idea that when a person dies, their soul leaves their body and returns as another person, or even as an animal. This is called reincarnation. And this is what many Eastern religions and Hinduism teaches. Again, what do all these teachings have in common? If you answered, the common belief of all of these is the belief in an immortal soul, then you answered the question correctly. The fact is that all of these belief systems agree about one thing, even though uh, not all of them are Christian, they all believe in this. They all believe that inside of every physical human body, there is dwelling something very mysterious called the soul that never dies. The soul apparently is immortal, which means undying. The idea is that when a person breathes his or her last breath in this life and dies, that the soul inside doesn't really die at all. Most Christian churches teach that souls go either to heaven or to hell at the moment of death. Catholics believe the same thing, but they add purgatory for those who aren't quite bad enough or good enough. New Age and Eastern religions teach reincarnation and or after-death communications from ghosts. The ancient Egyptians sometimes killed a host of Pharaoh's servants when he died and buried them with him inside of pyramids so that the dead servants could serve the dead Pharaoh in the afterlife. And again, all of these teachings have one belief in common, one underlying conviction, and that is this. They all believe that deep within every human being is a conscious, always thinking, never dying, invisible soul. During the Dark Ages, during the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, and up until this very moment, this teaching is fundamental to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. I have in my hand a copy of a large book, which is the official catechism of the Catholic Church that was first published in the year 1994. And let me read to you what it says from page 93. And again, this is a basic Roman Catholic teaching. Quote, the church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God. It is not produced by the parents. And also, the church teaches that that soul is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death, and it will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. Let me read that again. The church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God and that it is also immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death, 
So that's very clear that Catholics believe, right from their own catechism, that the soul is something inside of us that never dies. Most Protestant churches that rose up in the 1500s and came out of the Catholic Church, today they teach the same thing. But it's time for us to take a closer look at this doctrine and to compare it with what the Holy Bible actually says. So are you ready for this? Here we go. Our first text is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, and I'm reading from the King James Bible. This is what God's Word says, quote, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, to whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So this is our first text, and it's very clear. This is definitely talking about God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And verse 16 says that he only has immortality. And the word only means it's not something that we naturally have, but something that God has. Our next text is Romans chapter 2, verse 7. Paul wrote this, and Paul is talking about who God is going to give eternal life to. And I'll just read the text. Verse 7 says that God will give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, in this verse, Paul agrees with what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. In this verse, he says that we down here are seeking, we are seeking for glory, honor, and immortality, but we don't have it yet. It's coming, and in our next verse, we'll see when we get it. Next text is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a famous passage, but one which we, uh, we really need to look closer at. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 55. This is what Paul wrote, quote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, referring to death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Now, in these verses, again, Paul is, is very clear. He's talking about death, burial, and resurrection. And he says that in verse 53, that on resurrection day, this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, right now, in the sinful state that we're in, as we are waiting for Jesus to come, we are not immortal, we are mortal. Mortal means subject to death. And he says that on resurrection day, we will put on immortality. So again, this agrees with 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that says that God is the only one who has immortality right now. Romans 2, 7, that says that we are seeking for glory and honor and immortality through Jesus. And there, verse 53, Paul says we're mortal and immortality is coming to us 
on Resurrection Day. Next text, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Now, in this verse, it's not Paul writing, but it's God himself talking about the soul. Verse 4, God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And then the Lord says, quote, The soul who sins, it shall die. Now, again, in this verse, it's the Lord himself talking. He says that all souls belong to him, and he says the soul that sins, it will die. In other words, according to God himself, it is possible for the soul to die. And in fact, that's what does happen uh, at, at death. We do die. That's why we need a resurrection. In other words, as we look at all these verses, it's very clear that the Bible does not teach the immortal soul doctrine. Now, to get a better handle on this topic, we need to go back to the beginning. So let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and let's look at verse 7 and see what the Bible says about the soul. The answer may surprise you. Verse 7, the scripture says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So here God took the dust of the earth, he formed Adam, and then he breathed the breath of life into Adam, and then it says that Adam became a living soul. In other words, in this passage, the Bible doesn't say that Adam had a soul or that God put a soul into him, but rather that he became a living soul when the breath of life entered his body. In verses 16 and 17, we find God giving this living soul a warning. And I'll read it straight from the Lord himself. The Bible says that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die." Now, in this verse, God was talking to Adam, and again, Adam was a living soul. And basically, God said, Adam, living soul, you are free to eat from all the fruit, the delicious fruit that I put in this garden. But don't eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden, because if you do, you, Adam, you living soul, you will surely, definitely, uh, for sure, you will die. So that's the context of chapter 3. The drama intensifies. In Genesis chapter 3, reading from verse 1 to verse 4, the Bible says that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So what's happening is a snake slithers in to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he begins to have a conversation with Eve. Quote, and he said to the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I think Eve made a big mistake here. She never should have been talking to that snake. It's never safe to talk to the devil. But she made a big mistake and began a dialogue with him and then repeated what God had said, or at least most of it, that 
she wasn't supposed to eat from that one tree in the middle of the garden, and if she did, she would die. And then verse 4 is the critical text. Verse 4 says, And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. So in Genesis 2, verse 17, God told the living soul that if he ate, he would die. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent challenged that word and said, You will not surely die. So the question is, who was right, God or the snake? Most people don't realize this, but the very first sermon ever preached teaching the immortal soul was actually preached by, guess who? It was preached by the devil. Its pulpit was the tree. The place was the Garden of Eden. The first listener was Eve. And this was a lie. It was a lie straight from the pit. And Eve had to make a choice. Who was right? God or the snake? Who should she listen to? Who would she believe? Sadly for all of us, Eve chose to believe the snake. And she ate the fruit, then she gave it to Adam. Adam took a bite, they both sinned. And in a little while, God came into the garden and he pronounced this sentence, which is in Genesis chapter three, verse 19. The Lord said to Adam, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and to dust, you shall return. Now, notice carefully, uh, God didn't tell Adam that your body is dust, so it's going back to the dust. No, he said, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And again, Adam was a living soul, and because of his sin, he was going to go back to the ground. Now, verses 22 and 24 contain critical information about this subject. So I'm just going to read it right from the Bible, and then I'm going to make six points. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, in verse 22, the Bible says that the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from where he was taken. So he drove out the man. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, I want to make six points from this passage that are very, very important. So please listen carefully. Point number one, Adam and Eve were now sinners. They obviously had eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were in a sinful, fallen state. Point number two, eating from the tree of life would then allow them to live forever. Point number three, God does not want sinners to live forever because that means that sin would go on forever. And so point number four, he sent two angels with swords to guard the way to the tree of life. Point number five, Adam and Eve never got to that tree. It's obvious, uh, you know, they didn't make it past the guard. And so, point number six, the conclusion is that sinful mortals do not naturally live forever. It's impossible because we've never gotten to that tree of life. We've never eaten, so we just don't naturally live forever, which means that the human soul 
is not immortal right now. At death, a person's soul does not fly instantly to heaven or descend it to a fiery hell or float into purgatory or travel around the world, maybe through Los Angeles or New York, as it enters the spirit world. And it certainly can never be reincarnated and come back as a dog, a rabbit, a moose, or a rat, or a mouse. Now, I realize that the immortal soul doctrine is taught by Protestant churches, but it really comes from the Roman Catholic Church. And where did the Catholic Church get it? If you trace it back, ultimately, it goes all the way back to a beady-eyed reptile who spoke to a woman named Eve in the Garden of Eden and who said deceptively, you will not surely die. But remember, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, the Holy Bible says that God alone has immortality. In Romans chapter 2, verse 7, the Holy Bible says that we are seeking immortality which means that we don't have it now. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the Holy Bible says that believers will put on immortality on resurrection morning. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24, the Holy Bible says that sinful Adam and Eve did not eat from the tree of life, which means that none of their descendants naturally live forever. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, God himself very clearly says that the soul that sins, it shall die. Yet again, and this is the core issue that we're dealing with in this program, flying against all of these clear Bible verses is that counterstatement that I read earlier from the official catechism of the Roman Catholic Church on page 93, which says this, the church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God. It is not produced by the parents and also that it is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death and it will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. Friends, we've got to make a decision what we're going to believe. Are we going to believe the Bible or are we going to believe the teachings of the Roman church? Just like Eve had to make a decision. Was she going to listen to God who said that if she sinned, she would surely die? Or would she listen to the serpent who said, you will not surely die? Based on all the verses that we've looked at in this time of the end, which we are living in right now, which is a time when the book of Daniel in chapter 12, verse 4 says that knowledge shall increase Surely God is calling us to return to his word and to continue the Reformation by giving up false beliefs about the immortal soul. By this time, I'm sure many of you have lots of questions. You may be wondering, well, Steve, uh, what about what Jesus said to the thief on the cross as they were both dying? What about that? You may also have questions about Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus. What about that? Or what about Paul's statement about longing to be absent from the body and present with the Lord? What about that? Or what about the appearance of Moses and Elijah to Jesus? Or the souls that appeared under the altar in the book of Revelation? What about that? Believe me, there are solid Bible answers to all of these questions that make sense and that agree with the rest of God's word. 
Some of these answers are in a little booklet that will be offered at the end of this program. Many more answers to your good questions are on the website whitehorsemedia.com in our section on articles in a series called Death Discussions. I hope you will visit our website and take a look. In part eight of this series, we'll go deeper and we'll look at what really happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, the center of Christianity. Every spring, Christians of all denominations ponder Jesus' death on the cross on Good Friday. They think about his burial and his silent time in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Then they rejoice in the glory of his resurrection. And just to let you know, personally, I am a strong believer in the resurrection of Jesus. When I was 20 years old, I was living in Southern California. At that time, I was a pot-smoking, cocaine-snorting, disco-dancing, wild, aimless, lost Jew. But then I discovered the truth that Jesus Christ was my personal Messiah, that he loved me, Steve Wahlberg, and that he died on a cruel cross for all of my sins, that he was dead for three days, and that he actually literally rose from the dead. I knelt down and I asked him to come into my heart. And he did. He forgave my sins, changed my life, and he raised me up too. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. In Matthew 16, 21, the Bible says that from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. In Matthew 28, verses 5 and 6, an angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. After his resurrection, as he met with his wandering disciples in Luke 24, verse 45, the Bible says, Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. In verse 46, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then verse 12 says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? This leads us to part eight of this special series, which is coming up next. It's called, Did Jesus Christ Really Rise from the Dead? In other words, was he really dead, as the Bible says? When he died on that dark Friday afternoon nearly 2,000 years ago for the sins of the whole world and then cried out, it is finished, and then breathed his last breath, did he really die? Or was it just his physical body, but not his inner soul that was taken off the cross and placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? Where was Jesus from Friday to Sunday? Was he in a dark cave in a rock? surrounded by Roman soldiers who guarded that tomb? Or was he really somewhere else? Was he in a place called hell? And if he was in hell, what does that really mean? 
You'll find out in part eight that is coming up. So stick with me. You've been listening to the Protestant Reformation Then and Now with Pastor Steve Wolberg of Whitehorse Media. To learn more about this topic, order your copy of the inexpensive pocketbook titled Solving the Mystery of Death by calling 1-800-78-BIBLE, by ordering online at whitehorsemedia.com, or by purchasing the ebook on amazon.com.